Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Like back up the show and just tell you a little, a little story about the individual we're, we're about to interview. So usually I have like a 24 hour window between episodes are being recorded live. So last night I went to bed and I had my list of podcasts I was going to interview today. And then I woke up at like five o'clock in the morning and sure as hell, I look at my email and it was a podcast that came in at three o'clock in the morning, 3 a.m. today. First time. Right. And I'm like looking at this guy's dossier and I'm looking at his background and I'm like, OK, First of all, at five o'clock in the morning, I'm thinking, should I cancel this episode or should I like, you know, just do some research? So I did some research and come to find out this guy, not only was he a lawyer, but he went from being a lawyer and then he decided to then move him and his entire family to Jerusalem, Israel. And then he also became an author and he also owns an online e-commerce company. And he has all these different facets of different business structures and philosophies all encompassing in this one individual person. So I'm going to deem this individual the curious boss. So, David, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about who you are and what are we talking about today? First of all, I love that name because when people ask me, like, what am I about? What am I into? Curiosity is really at the very, very top. You know, I am so such a curious individual. In fact, recently during the whole pandemic, you know, what I was having a hard time during a certain part of it. And I realized, you know what? wow, I'm not feeling curious. I'm feeling down. I don't have that normal curiosity that I normally have. It's like, wow, okay, I need to get that back because that's really when I'm plugged in is when I'm super duper curious. So I was an attorney. I was an environmental litigator for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Used to do all kinds of clean air, clean water, ecosystems preservation stuff. Um, But as I was in this profession, I started to see, okay, I really think it's making a contribution. I really like it, but I don't want to become my bosses. I'm looking at their lifestyle. I'm looking at how incredibly hard they're working and how they're spending all day. Even though they're working for the environment, they're spending their days under fluorescent lights in an office on a computer. Like, okay, that's not where I really want my life to look like. And at the time I was getting ready to kind of start a family. And I said, you know what? I want a bit of a different life for myself. And I want to picking up and moving, like you said, to Jerusalem. I actually want to meeting my wife in America before we moved, but we started dating and got married and built a family here. And I realized, okay, I need to be transitioning a bit. I actually, I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm actually, I later became a rabbi. But at the time I was like, okay, I want to be having a spiritual life and I want to be having a family life. And I don't want everything dedicated towards my work. And so I went into business knowing that with e-commerce, I mean, it's one of the greatest miracles to ever happen. The fact that I can live in Jerusalem and sell products I've never seen to people I will never meet who shop on my sites while I'm asleep halfway around the world is an incredible miracle. It allows me to live over here and really have a lot of time and a lot of freedom with my life. And I wound up doing a lot of studying of Judaism and getting really excited by what I was learning about prophecy, actually. And as I was learning about prophecy, I was, remember this one day I was finishing Harry Potter 7 for the third time. And I said to myself, you know what? A book needs to be written like this, but in the world of the prophets. And so I said, you know what? Being a businessman, I'm like, okay, who can I hire to write a Harry Potter type prophecy book? 
And it soon came back to me within a few days, Dave, you're not going to hire anyone to take over your dream. You want to make this happen. You need to teach yourself how to write. So I dug in. I spent first years writing. I spent six years writing my first book, which is called The Lamp of Darkness. And over that period, I really started understanding about writing and storytelling. And I really loved the experience. And I went on and wrote book two of that series and then started seeing different techniques being really powerful in my life. I really I had this pretty amazing experience after reading Think and Grow Rich. And I kind of took his skills and things I was learning from, from Napoleon Hill and modified them a bit to fit what I was trying to do. And I was just so blown away by the results I was seeing in my life that I said, okay, I need to write a novel about all these techniques I've learned for how to manifest things. So I wrote this book together with my wife called The Size of Your Dreams, all about manifestation. And that too is, it's a novel. I feel like people learn best through story. I know you're really into story. So we took all these lessons about how to manifest your dreams and put them into a novel set in a high school classroom. People say it's like thinking grow rich meets dead poet society. And then after that book came out, I'm still writing the Age of Prophecy series, my prophecy stuff. But I looked at our life and I realized, you know what? We've gotten ourselves at a certain point into a lot of debt, not because we weren't making good money, but because we were making dumb choices with the money we had. And I said, you know, it makes sense. I've never had a financial education. None of all of us grow up. We, you know, I went through high school, college, law school. Never did anybody talk to me about what to do with my money. It was all about, okay, how to get a good job to make money, but not how to spend it wisely. So I'm like, all right. I've already written three novels. I know that when I'm writing a novel, I have to just dig in deep and really understand the subject. So if I want to stand, understand financial literacy, maybe I should start writing a novel on financial literacy, not because I know it, but because I know that the process of writing it will make me understand it. And so we spent like two years digging in and learning everything I could about money and writing this novel also together with my wife on financial literacy called The Cash Machine. And by the time we were done with that, that book, our whole perspective on money had drastically shifted. And thank God it's like we're in a completely different place, despite not really making all that much more, just the quality of our choices around money have gotten so much better that we're in an absolutely different place around that. So I really love saying, okay, what are the areas I'm really kind of lacking in in my life? How can I go dig into that? How can I learn about that subject? And maybe how can I write about it and really help other people in that area as well? I'm just listening to you talk, and, and, and again, I'm itemizing out the list of things that, that you said. I mean, you said that you're, you're a rabbi, right? You're an e-commerce specialist. You're a CEO. You were also a lawyer one time. You're a family man, right? And I, I've, so with all these different things, right, like how the hell are you juggling all these different aspects of your life all at the same time? It's so funny you ask that because I look at it completely the opposite. I, if anything, look at the, you know, I hear you got up at 5 a.m. and you're cracking away and you're studying for this, for this podcast and doing your due diligence. I often find that, wow, the hours are just going by and I'm not really getting all that much done today. You know, if, if anything, I have a hard time kind of dragging myself out of bed and motivating myself to, 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 to get working. Yet I know everybody looks at me from the outside and says, it's incredible how much he seems to get done. I think what I, I am doing, I think I, I tend to work very efficiently. Like my e-commerce business, I try to keep myself under 15 minutes a day on operating that. And a lot of that comes from having built really great systems and having hired really amazing staff and they know what they do and they don't really turn to me for much. So I've kind of created a system where almost nothing in the business requires my 
my daily input. There's always somebody to take care of it. And you know, every now and then there's something changes in the business. We have a real problem. Okay, I, I get myself up. I look at the business. I see, okay, how do we fix that? How do we build a new system so that I can take myself back out? But yeah, I'm not this guy who's effectively juggling a million different things. At least it doesn't seem that way, that way to me. It's like, okay, I look at it. I want this business to run. This is where my income comes from, not my books or something, my other things. All right, how can I make it so that it's really running pretty much on autopilot? So that I can be dedicating myself to other things that I really want to be spending a lot more of my energy in. So, I mean, with that, I mean, you're talking about systems in place. Let's just back it up, right? I mean, again, you are a trained law professional, right? So how does that transcribe into becoming an e-commerce professional? Like, I mean, what did that journey look like for you? I mean, how did it happen? Okay, so we're going back at this point. My transition into... um, in e-commerce. So I left law in 2002. So we're going back, going back 20 years at this point. And e-commerce was really a very different thing. Honestly, I had just started while I was in law school near the end of it. You know, the internet was pretty new and I was really curious about it. And I was just, would spend time learning about it and teaching myself how to build websites. And at a certain point I had a, had a close friend who was seeing what I was doing and seeing how I was kind of delving in and playing around and trying to understand the internet. She's like, well, you know, I have a real interest in that too. At the time she was more struggling financially. So I said, you know what, what if I, what if we kind of do something together, you'll build the websites and, you know, I'll fund it initially while we get it going. And so the whole time I was working as an attorney, actually, I was doing these websites where we were doing affiliate marketing. I was the silent partner in this affiliate marketing business. So affiliate marketing, I didn't sell anything, you know, but people would get to my website, usually through a search engine, which were pretty new at the time, and then click on a link and go somewhere else and buy something. And we'd get a small commission and that, you know, we did a little bit better than breaking even, nothing special. But the whole time I was an attorney, which was only a couple of years really, I had this business going on. And so when I looked at myself and say, okay, I want my lifestyle to be different. I'd like to be moving to Israel and having a more spiritual life. I already kind of had this thing in my back pocket, right? A couple of years of being a silent partner in this business that was creating these websites and knew how to kind of get people in through the search engines. So I said, all right, what if I step it up? What if instead of being an affiliate marketer, what if I now start building my own websites and selling my own stuff? And so I started that just as I was leaving America and set it up as a, as a U.S. business. And I really experimented in selling a whole lot of stuff and really kind of found my niche in cabinet hardware. That's what I actually I actually sell. I sell cabinet knobs. I sold millions of cabinet knobs, which is such a random, random thing. But uh, it really, I never planned it. I'm not like the business plan guy. I'm going to do this. And then next year, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, year three, we're going to do this. It's like, no, no, no. I threw a bunch of stuff up. I see what worked. I see what di- saw what didn't work. I took stuff down. I put new stuff up. And that's how I kind of found my niche and found the area of like, okay, this is an area where I can, where I can do it without really constantly working too hard in that space. It's very interesting that you said like, you know, you threw some stuff up like spaghetti against the wall, see if it's stuck or not. And then you kind of said, okay, this is particularly selling. So, I mean, in that, right. I mean, obviously you're talking about selling multiple things and you landed on cabinet knobs. So like, what other things were you selling? Like, what other things did you have that, that wasn't as fruitful as the cabinet knobs before you found that they were the things that you were going to sell moving forward? 
So I'll, I'll tell you the story. So at a certain point, I was selling patio furniture. Yeah. And I had this one brand of very rustic patio furniture that I was selling. And I went to visit them at their factory. And when I came in there, first of all, it was pretty clear to me that nobody ever visited them before. Like they were so surprised to actually have one of their customers come in and visit. And the woman who was working there, this woman, Jody, she said, you know, you're doing a good job selling our patio furniture. We've got a line of beds that I think you do well with. So I said, okay. So I started selling her beds. And these beds, you know, were very, very, again, it's rustic. So these rustic beds. So people were buying them for their mountain cabins. So after selling a bunch of people to bunch of furniture people and have these mountain cabins. I'm like, huh, maybe I should be specifically targeting cabin owners. So I go into my search, my keyword research tool, and I put in the word cabin, and I saw that my cabin owners didn't come up so high. Ah, but kitchen cabinets came up very high. So I started selling kitchen cabinets. And, but my cabinets had no knobs. So I started selling the knobs to go on the cabinets because my, as really just an accessory, because I was doing really well with the cabinets after, after a while. But cabinets were kind of big and bulky and hard to ship. And the knobs, you just put them in a box and ship them out. And I read, and even though I was making a lot of money on the cabinets, I realized, you know what? The knobs are just easier for me right now. It was just an easier product. And, you know, you go to your Lowe's, Home Depot, they'll have, you know, a couple hundred cabinets. But, you know, I've got 50,000 different cabinets that I, cabinet knobs that I, can be, that I can be offering. So it's like you can offer more than the local stores and, I could, and it shipped well. And it's like, okay. This is kind of is easier. When I got to a point when the business was, you know, a Google algorithm change hit and things started str started struggling in different areas, and I wanted to kind of streamline. I said, "All right, you know, this is kind of giving me less headache than some of the other areas, and it's bringing me a nice profit. Why don't I really just focus on really hitting the hitting the knobs, and then I can really turn much more of my attention." At this point, I was already writing, you know, to my books and everything else. That is a hell of a story. I mean, I think anybody that's an entrepreneur listening to this, I mean, you may have a set mind to say, okay, I'm going to sell X product. And then you, you know, have to realize the X product may not be selling. So for your story, you're talking about you were selling furniture from furniture. You made a visit from that visit. You started selling beds from beds. You did research. You found out that, you know, you're looking for cabins and found that cabinets were a higher search result. And then from cab selling cabinets, you moved to knobs. That's a hell of a, a entrepreneurial journey. But again, I think you have the insight to, to see what's working and what's not working and then when to raise your hand. Because again, you weren't selective about picking the knobs. Essentially, the knobs picked you. Correct me if I'm wrong. Absolutely. In fact, one of the, the books that I'm working on at the moment, my first nonfiction book, it's called Hurry Up and Fail. Mm. And that's a big part of my philosophy. It's like, you know, don't get yourself too tied up in this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to build a plan. I'm going to build it right. I'm going to build the whole thing out there. Exactly what you're saying about the spaghetti against the wall. You want to figure out as fast and as inexpensively as possible what is going to work for you and what's not going to work for you. And that use that clarity to then delve in and say, okay, now, now I found out which area is working. Now I want to put in the effort and the investment to expand. But putting in a ton of investment and effort up front in something that is just not going to work, I mean, it can be heartbreaking. We've all been there. And it's so much better to say, okay, what is a test that I can do to very quickly and inexpensively figure out if I've got a winner on my hands or not? So, I mean, this talk, we don't have to disclose real numbers, but I mean, what was the determining value that you said, okay, you know what, this is working? Because someone may say, okay, I sold a hundred units. I may have sold a hundred bucks. I may have sold a hundred thousand. What was it for you that said, okay, knobs is the direction I want to go in? That's a great question. I think a lot of it had to do for me with you know, less overall numbers mm -hmm. and more cost per sale numbers. 
you know, if I, if I, if I saw that I can put in, you know, $10 into Google ads and you know, in my early days, it might cost me like $10 to be making like an $80 sale. It's like, okay, that was a decent, that was a decent margin for me. I could see that, you know, a certain amount of money in would bring a certain amount of money out. And once I kind of had those numbers, I was able to go and scale it. And I was noticing as well that I was having less issues. When something went wrong with the cabinets, it went wrong expensively. You know, there's big, heavy, bulky things that they were shipping and something was dropped and something showed up broken. You know, suddenly I'd have the shipping was so expensive that there was a problem when it arrived and I had to ship more. People had to ship it back. And it was just absolutely clobbered my profit margins, just even a small error. So I, I started seeing, it's like, okay, I'm acquiring sales not that expensively. And the problems I'm having aren't such big problems. That's another really big factor. You know, if with, when everything's going, you've got your numbers when things are going right, but you need to think about, okay, what happens when things go wrong here as well? What is, what is my exposure when something goes wrong? And the exposure on the cabinets, you know, some messed up orders, the exposure was very, very high. Whereas in the knobs, it was just a lot lower. I think that's very interesting. I think another thing that, that you solve as well with just commerce generally is always units per transaction, right? You're trying to get as many units per transaction as humanly possible to increase the margin and increase the bottom line. And in your case, I mean, you found it without, without thinking about it. Right? I mean, you did the process of elimination, but if someone is redoing their cabinets, I would think at least at the bare minimum, you're selling 24 to 40 units per transaction. Exactly. And one of the things I figured out early on too, is I had a lot of transactions for one knob or one each of three different knobs. And I started realizing there was actually the same people who were buying 40 knobs two weeks later. And I realized actually that when I look at my numbers for transactions, it's important to realize that a lot of people are buying samples first, seeing what they like, and then coming back and placing a big order. In fact, when I had that insight, it led me to change the policies on my website to actually give rebates on samples. So I wanna make it as easy and inexpensive for people as possible to get that first order in, to get the samples to see what they want. And I know they'll come back to buy, to buy the big order from me if they've had a good experience with me up until that point. So once I started seeing like, it's not necessarily, there's the per transactions you point out, then I shifted a bit from the per transaction to the, the per customer. And how could I then see like, okay, the customer journey might not be a one sale transaction. It might be a multiple sales transaction. How do I walk the customer through step-by-step? Step? Interesting. So, I mean, I mean, hearing you speak, obviously, like, you know your topic. And, and I think everything that you've been through in life has facilitated to where you are right now. And, and it's very successful in, in the eye of the average user looking at you right now. But the perception may be you're an overnight success. But in reality, how long has it taken you to get to where you are from this day from law school until now? Okay, so law school, I graduated in 2000. Uh, for me, it's, it's interesting. The, the success I had was very, very fast initially. Um, getting an e-commerce, e-commerce was exploding. I was you know, pretty, pretty in there pretty early on. And you know, within a number of years, I was doing quite well. At that point, it wasn't my sales that were problematic. It was making a lot of dumb decisions about it. It was making a lot of ideas like, this gets into some of the money things I started dealing with with when I finally wrote the cash machine was I didn't really know what to do with all this money that was coming in. So, you know, the first year or two when I was making enough to get by, I was doing great and we were growing really rapidly. After a certain point, 
I started making twice as much as what I needed to live on, three times, four times, five times as much as I needed to live on. And at that point, I started hitting a lot of my money baggage. Like I felt uncomfortable making so much more money than I needed. I felt greedy making that. I felt like, well, I know so many people are struggling financially and like, okay, well, maybe I can go and give them jobs. And I wound up taking my streamlined, highly profitable business and hiring like everybody I knew who needed work and making it a big bloated business that was now losing money. And sales, you know, went up a tiny percent, but I wasn't getting any, I wasn't getting value from all these hires I was making. And that's when we actually went from, so we had a lot of early success and then it's absolutely plummeted as I got myself in a lot of debt, even though the numbers, you know, the top line numbers were still going up, but the bottom line numbers were, we went from, you know, in the block to in the red. And then at a certain point, getting myself this financial education and saying, okay, no, this is, I now understand money. I now understand what to do with money. I understand that actually, you know, I was riding for a while, I was riding a wave. And when you do that, okay, how can I be taking money out of that business and putting it into solid passive income generating sources that are going to help me produce? So if tomorrow Google changes its whole algorithm again, as they've done many, many times, and suddenly my business tanks as it's done numerous times over the last two decades, I'll be okay because I've now invested in so many different income generating areas. And so that's really been the approach I've taken the last couple of years. Had I had that approach in the first couple of years, I would have been financially independent within a few years rather than deeply in debt within a few years. So it's been, it's been a journey of 20 years with a lot of learning as part of it. Okay. But it didn't, it didn't take long for success. It took long to understand what to do with the success. That's definitely interesting. But I mean, that, that brings me to like, you know, as a kid, what kind of kid were you? Cause I mean, right now, you know, it seems like you're bouncing between multiple ideas, but you're systematizing these ideas to all work with each other in an ecosystem. So were you kind of like that kid with Legos always figuring things out or were you more like a social butterfly? Ooh, I was definitely not a social butterfly. No, I was on the socially awkward side of the side of the spectrum. Um, I was always very sharp. I was always good at figuring, I always like kind of good at figuring things out and I'd say definitely on the, on the lazy side too. Like I'd always kind of, I knew I could get by and do well in my classes with very little effort. And so I was never like, really like at the top of the, the spectrum, but I was like the, the, the guy who put in really little effort in order to, to get by and do well. And, and I think it's, it's a funny thing, but I think that's actually served me quite well in some ways. In some ways, like, like I'm the guy who wanted to be building a business that I don't have to work that hard in. Like a lot of people who do really well, I know I'd be doing much, much better, most likely, if I was the type of person who wanted to be working the 12 hour days and wanted to be super ambitious and be building up, you know, the, the giant businesses. And I've seen a number of businesses who are my competitors early on, who've gone on to become absolutely huge by, you know, constantly reinvesting and working extremely hard. Me, I kind of built it to be like, no, this is a lifestyle business. I want the business to be supporting all these other things I want to be doing in my life, my spiritual growth, my family, my writing. And so I was always kind of like, I was the shortcut guy. I guess that's how you put it. I was the guy who would always look for like the easy way that people haven't really stumbled over yet. I wasn't the hard worker or the plugger or anything along those lines. That's very, very, very interesting. 
I mean, based upon what you just said, and I'm just, you know, taking it in and then regurgitating it in a different way. My next question is really going to be more so a question about like, we talked about your childhood a little bit, but obviously your entrepreneurial insight, your entrepreneurial hustle, becoming a lawyer, some of that has to come from some kind of inspiration from somewhere. So do you come from an entrepreneurial background where any of your family members, your mom or your dad, entrepreneurs? Great question. So my father, when he was 16 years old, I always loved this story. His mom took, took him to take a, an aptitude test. Mm-hmm. And it told him he should be self-employed and either an accountant or a dentist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he looked at that and he said, you know what? Looked at the dentist and says, okay, the dentist does a good, doesn't seem to work too hard. Seems to be playing golf a lot. Seems to make a good living for his family. Okay, I'll become a dentist. And so that was my father's path. He was very, very practical, grew up in a very poor family. And you know, they always had enough, but like they weren't, definitely struggled somewhat. And he's like, I want more. I want more material success. I want more comfort in my life than, than I had growing up. And so he takes this test and is told, do X, Y, Z. And he does. He jumps right in. He became a dentist and built a very successful dental practice. And so dentist is kind of an interesting with an entrepreneurial journey. Like it's, he's definitely self-employed, um, but definitely the type of person who'd work very, work very hard, you know, work a full day. He's always incredibly concerned with, you know, the quality of care that his customers are, his customers are getting. And, um, and that was his whole journey. So working for yourself is definitely something I, I saw modeled. The out of the box stuff, not, not so much. Like for my father is very much, you know, somebody told him, follow this exact path and he followed that exact path. And he tried to give me something similar. I remember I probably like in third grade when he looked at me and he said, Dave, you should be a tax attorney. And he said, I said a tax attorney. He said, yeah, you're, like, you're really good in math and you know, you're argumentative. And it's a uh, tax attorneys are the, an area of law where they don't seem to work all that hard. And uh, unlike some areas of law, we could work 60 hours a week. Tax attorneys don't tend to do that. And they tend to make good livings and working for clients who could pay for them. That's the path he wanted for me. That was, he was advising me to go on a similar path that he went on, working on the 40-hour week and making a really good living. And for me, that didn't appeal to me at all. To me, the idea of like showing up every day at the same business and doing the same thing all day long, it wasn't very appealing to me. I was much more, I was the guy who, you know, graduated college and put on a backpack and went off around the world and just wanted to explore and understand and connect with different ideas and connect with different people. And so, yes, I had the model for the self-employment, but I think the, it was much more me breaking away from the path of my parents that kind of led me to say, all right, no, I need a business I can work in not that hard that can give me enough to live on and support my family on so that I can go pursue everything else I'm interested in. I mean, just continue on, on the path of like, like family, uh, you know, obviously this morning three, you know, five o'clock this morning I woke up and I'm doing my due diligence and I, and I came across your wife and it's kind of like, you guys are an extreme power couple, right? I mean, obviously your wife has her own thing going on. She's a motivational speaker. She has her own YouTube channel. She has books as well. She's a co-author on your books. So like, just, just talk about that. Like, how did you guys find each other? Because usually it's, it's, it's the polar opposite. Usually you'll find like a negative and a positive, but it seems like both of you guys are like-minded in the same space at the same time. We are, and I think Hannah getting involved in, in the books really started as 
I pulled her in on the size of your dream. So I, I had at this point published my first book. And when I started writing this book, I mean, she was incredibly supportive, but also at the same time, like, yeah, right. You're going to write a book. We'll see how that goes. Um, but she was definitely supportive the entire time that I was in that journey. And it was later as I started writing this book, The Size of Your Dreams. And I told her about it and she got excited about it. And I kind of brought her in and she and I decided to co-author that book together. And we later co-authored The Cash Machine. That really got her started on that journey as well, going out there and writing and writing books. And she just found that she's got this incredible ability to find what somebody is struggling with, usually like you know, mental thoughts that are holding somebody back and break through it in a heartbeat. Um, and her coaching practice is, is pretty incredible. But now that came much later. Now that's, that's a handful of years old. Now most of the time, you know, she was, she was a homeschool mom. You know, she was going to pull our son out of school at a, at a certain age and was very into being a, being home and she's really into into health and what we eat and and having you know educating and raising her son and then just at a certain point it's like people really started coming to her because she got so good at working on these mental these mental things and we're really we're we're shifting now you know our son is now out of the house five days a week he's in the in the School boarding school in Israel is a little bit different than America. You don't ship them off for like three months. Like he's he's home every weekend, but he's actually boarding during during the week. And so we've been shifting to that empty nester phase. And so she's really been going from really full time mom to really exploring all of her potential and everything that she has to bring to the world at the same time. So it's interesting that you're looking at us as this power couple because. When we started out, we were this couple where you know I wasn't working all that hard and she wasn't working at all. We were very much we were very much this laid back couple as people saw us and and you know, but again, both being curious and both constantly be looking to grow, and so cumulative over you know it's now been eighteen years we've been married, a lot of stuff has started coming together. So, I mean, with that, I mean, obviously you're talking about time frame and shifting and, and recently to, to where she found her creative genius. How do you guys currently juggle your work life with your family life? Family life definitely comes first. Um, we, you know, for both of us, she's, she'll have, you know, a handful of clients during the week and she's, she's very cognizant of the hours that she wants to be working with people, the hours she's comfortable doing that, when she wants to be available, when she doesn't want to be available. And she's really not the, the workaholic type who just takes on a huge, huge burden on her, on her shoulders. Um, we're really into work-life balance. We're really into hitting very healthy ways of living. And we're, we're both at this point, both at this point vegan, both committed to like, you know, getting to bed really early both committed to getting a lot of exercise and being and being healthy. So, so for us, it's like work is just a piece of, of the puzzle and by no means the dominant one. Got it. So, I mean, you, you're talking about um, one thing that you just said about going to bed early. So let's talk about like your morning routines, your morning habits, because it seems like you guys are pretty structured systematically or I could be wrong. So what would your morning routines look like? So the biggest thing for, for me in my, in my morning, so I will not touch business in the mornings. I find that once I get involved in business, it's hard to get myself back out. It's a, it's a bit like 
you know, when you reboot your computer, suddenly it's got all this power to it, but you open too many windows. Even if you're not looking at those windows, it's slowing everything down. That's how I kind of feel about myself in the, in the morning. And so the mornings I tend to dedicate mostly to the more spiritual side. So I get up and, and uh, again, Orthodox Jew, so I have prayer in the mornings. And then I go and um, I have what's called a chavruta, study partner, somebody I learn one-on-one with. And we are going through the Talmud. So the Talmud, if you learn one page of it per day, one double-sided page per day, it takes you seven years to go through the entirety of it. And actually one page a day might not sound like a lot, but it is a lot. And so we've decided to, to do that together. And so every day I go and I meet with somebody and we work through that day's Talmud page. And so I'm constantly trying to, so I'm learning about the Judaism first. I'm kind of dedicating myself to you know, that spiritual and growth area first before I'm get, ever getting to, towards my, my work area. From that point, I go to writing my prophecy books. Um, again, still I'm in this kind of more spiritual place. I'm now transitioning into my writing part of my day, but still I like to give my mornings to that more spiritual side. So I'm writing this, this series that we say is like you know, the biblical Harry Potter series and do that in the mornings, then come and we'll, Han and I will have lunch together. And then I start transitioning into working on some of my other books or projects checking in with my business, seeing how, seeing how sales have been doing and seeing if there's anything I need to step in and, and tweak with the business. And then look at some of our different, our different projects and what we want to be, what we want to be working on, on next and you know, going for a run, going for a walk with my wife, things along those lines. Like it's, it's not, it's not that intensive a work day by any means, but it, it certainly starts off with, with the self-care and with, okay, can deal with the more in the, the spiritual soul-centered side before I deal with the practical business side, which really is kind of more what I do with my afternoon evening. Very interesting. I mean, I'm just, I'm just listening to you and it's kind of like, like the way you formatted your life, it's kind of all centralized based upon like what you want to do and then your principles of what you want to learn. So I think part of that is intuition inside of you, but the other part of it had to be some information you've gathered over a period of time. So my next question is like, what books, have you read? And I'm talking about books probably like post-law, right? Because law books are completely different than what you're really into. And right now you're kind of like a a co-mingling between fiction and nonfiction, self-help and storytelling. So what books kind of inspired you on your journey to get you to where you are currently? It's a great question. Um, And I think about different projects. I think about different books that really came, came to me. Like The Alchemist was a big inspiration for the my age of prophecy series the the book the goal was a very big inspiration for me to work on books like the size of your dreams and the cash machine um, the goal if you're if you're not familiar with it is a it's a book that really revolutionized u.s manufacturing and by this guy named eliao goldrat and he was also actually an israeli an orthodox israeli but coincidentally that's but he's he he also taught all of his manufacturing principles in a novel. So he was really a good model for me and somebody who wrote a novel that taught a ton of really practical life lessons and business lessons in it. And that was a big model for me to get in and say, okay, you know what? Teaching people the most valuable lessons they have to share and being a novelist are two things that can really go together hand in hand, even though most people 
when they want to teach lessons, they write nonfiction. And they want to, they want to, you know, tell stories, they write fiction. To me, they really go hand in hand. And then fiction is just a great avenue to be passing along amazing lessons. I think it's definitely interesting. I mean, obviously, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people, and and like the spectrum between like fiction and nonfiction. Potentially, you're always looking at more so self help. But I mean, the fact that you've kind of find the line, the blurred lines between them, kind of like talking about Harry Potter. But what would Harry Potter look like as a business, right? I mean, it's kind of like that's the direction you're kind of switching things into. So. That's that's the books that you read to get to where you are. My next question is, what books are you actively reading today? I just finished yesterday one called Save the Cat. Actually, called Save the Cat Writes a Novel, interestingly enough. Um, and that one was about the, the title comes from this idea in, um, in the screenwriting circles. It says... If you want people to like a character early on in a book, have the character save a cat. You know, cat's up a tree. You're going to show this person's a, a good guy. You want someone to, to show that a character's a nasty individual. You want the readers to dislike, have them kick a dog. So that's an old, old idea. And, and this was a book I was, did I watch the writing course that Brandon Sanderson had, uh, had given at BYU and he put it up on YouTube. So I was recently watched that and he brought up this book. So I went back and I read this book. Now, to me, I just want to constantly be working on, on my craft and figuring out like how I can be better. And it look, goes through 15 different story beats that you see in, in story after story after story. In fact, Save the Cat was first a screenwriter's book. And then the version I read was somebody who took it and adapted it for novel writers. But it's kind of saying that good stories tend to have in common these 15 different steps. And so I went through and read that and started to ask myself on kind of my works in progress. I've got multiple novels I'm currently working on. Okay, can looking at these 15 steps help me get greater clarity about the story structure and where I'm going and you know, what are the pieces I need to be putting into, into my books? So that's one that I happen to be reading, reading at the moment. All right. So going into like the last part of this three-part question is, Obviously, you're an author, right? And we, we've alluded to the, the books that you've written and like your philosophy behind writing these books. So if you can pick like one of the books that you've written and kind of like just talk about it and kind of tell us like why, why would you pick that book? Why is that book your favorite book out of the ones you've written? Okay, I'm going to go with The Size of Your Dreams right now. Okay. So The Size of Your Dreams, here's how this book came about. It's kind of a cool story. So as I mentioned, we got ourselves into a real financial jam. Mm -hmm. And part of the... There were really two aspects to that. One, we, I made a bunch of really dumb business choices and made my business way too big and bloated. Two, my wife really wanted to have like a house and like our permanent house early on. And we wanted buying a house, but then putting way too much money into fixing it up. It wound up going so far over budget. And we really became house poor. We just drained all of our resources and borrowed money in order to buy this house and borrowed a lot of money from family. And that was causing a lot of tension because we, you know, they'd helped us out with money, but I felt really bad about it. And we decided, you know what, to get ourselves out of the hole, we wanted to sell this house. The problem was we put so much money into the house that our neighborhood, which wasn't really a fancy neighborhood, people weren't used to spending that much money on a house to be getting us back all the money we needed to get back out because we'd taken it, we made it much fancier than the neighborhood average was. And so we needed a, like exactly the right buyer for this place. And we knew that wasn't going to be easy to do. We needed to get a certain 
we have a pretty generous price for it to really get ourselves out of debt. So I wound up taking some of the things I'd learned in Thinking Grow Rich and writing myself a note card. And the note card said that I intended to sell this house by July 27th, 2015 for exactly this amount of money. And I put down exactly what it was. And I listed all the steps I would take in order to go about selling the house. And I read this card multiple times per day. First thing when I woke up in the morning, last thing before I went to bed at night, one or two times in the middle of the day, I kept reading this card and focusing myself on what I had to do to sell this house. And by the way, the steps would change. Like I'd try something and I, you know, it wouldn't work. I'd cross it out. I'd add, I'd add new things. You know, I'd rip up the card and redo it because I'd run out of space after all the ideas, all the changes I made to the ideas. But the goal of selling it, the date I wanted to sell by, and the price I wanted to get never, ever changed. And when we finally did wind up selling the house, we actually sold it to very good friends of ours. And they invited us over to, you know, to crack a bottle of champagne and celebrate. And I walk into their house and I hand them this note card. And they take this note card and they look at this and they say, what is this? And I say, well, I've been reading this every day for the last six months, multiple times per day. And they were blown away because it was July 27th, 2015, the day we closed and we closed for exactly that amount of money. And I saw just how incredibly powerful this was. And let me be clear, this isn't the secret. This isn't just focus on it, focus on it, focus on it. It's focusing on a clear goal, on a clear date, but also very much focusing on, okay, what are the steps I need to take in order to move this goal forward? And for me, it was just transformational. Like I saw, wow, this is something really, really powerful. And that made me want to write a novel teaching people how to use this technique and a whole bunch of other techniques as well for how they could move their own goals forward. So listen, I mean, uh, part of it is uh, I'm happy you brought up like the secret because again, you're adding on to the secret, but you're also taking Napoleon Hill's mastermind um, theories as well. And you're com combining them to kind of come up with your own philosophies, which is definitely interesting. And it, it's a mouthful to deal with, right? I mean, the average person would either take one or the other but you're playing in the fields of merging both of them together into creating something new, which is definitely inspiring, right? So I, I kind of want to just like step back a little bit, right? And I'm listening to your story and I'm listening to your journey and I, I, I see why you're successful. So this next question is kind of like future tense, right? How does someone go from Hartford, Connecticut to Israel? Now, what's your next step? Where do you see yourself 20 years? Because I mean, the last 20 years, two completely different constructs, right? So where do you see yourself 20 years from now? It's a great question. We're actually considering taking a move to the northern part of Israel. There's a, there's a town I've always wanted to live in. But I, I lived in very briefly in the past when I was single, and I've always wanted to go back to. Um, it's this town called Sfat in the north of Israel, and it's it's the mystical city. Now, if I was to to draw like a map of Israel, you know, you kind of get Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Be'er Sheva, Haifa, all those places. Then you have Sfat kind of floating above the map somewhere. It's like it's you know, maybe like a little bit of an anchor into the ground, but Sfat is kind of a city in the air. It's, uh, it's, it's called the mystical city. It's been known for the, the center of Kabbalah. It's, it's a city where things don't really work according to all of the laws of reality that we're used to in the rest of the world. It's a very interesting kind of spiritual place. It's a very beautiful place. It's a very quiet place. And, you know, when we first looked at it, and moving up there, right when we got married, my wife's like, no, 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 this is not grounded enough to be raising a family in. 
But now that we're moving into that empty nest phase, it is a great place to be creative. It's a great place to really be, you know, going deeper within our, within ourselves. And so we are considering making a move up there. Um, probably by the time this podcast airs, well, hopefully, you know, might be already living up there. And we like that idea of kind of having that as a home base for ourselves, you know, being a beautiful place, a really spiritually connected place, but also doing a lot of traveling. My, like my wife did her first retreat um, actually in Mexico and came back from it saying, Dave, this is what I want to be doing. Wow, it was such an incredible experience. I want to be doing retreats all over the world. And the next month COVID came out and the whole world got shut down. And so, you know, now that things are getting, are chilling out again, she's now doing her first retreat in like in two weeks, actually in Florida, since that one in Mexico, she's now like, okay, now that I'm able to travel and plan again, now I want to go back to being traveling around the world and teaching people and meeting with people. So I really see kind of the combination of these two where we are, do tend to be homebodies. We want to be in a quiet, beautiful, spiritual place where we can do a lot of our own personal work and our own writing and, and explorations. And then we want to be going from there and traveling and seeing a bit more of the world and interacting with people and teaching people. And so I think it's really, that's the combination of the internal and the external we're aiming for. Interesting. I mean, earlier on, you, you talked about backpacking, right? And then and I brought up your wife. And so obviously I looked at her profile as well. And the thing that, that stood out to me was, I think it was December of 2020, you guys went to South Africa, Cape Town, and she was like enamored by the penguins. So based upon what you're saying, it seems like, you know, you guys are going from being landlocked to being more world travelers in the near future. Well, I, I have to say that the South Africa trip, that was, that was an emergency trip, I like to call it. Uh, I'd lived in South Africa, actually, during my, my law school days, and I'd really liked it. My wife had always wanted to, wanted to go. And at the time, I was having a really hard time with a lockdown. Israel had a lot of lockdowns, and um, I could see that things were getting, we're heading into winter in Israel where things can be very cold and rainy. Um, there's not a lot of insulation here. So, you know, I found, I've lived in Chicago and I've lived in, in Israel and Israel is much colder in the winter experientially, even though temperature wise it's not because everything's stone and tile and wet dripping rain all the time. Like, you know, if we go into the winter and we're like locked in our apartment, all of us together in lockdown, we're going to want to kill each other. And we're at, at the time I was, I was seeing, I was, I was on a downward emotional slope with all of the, all the lockdowns and everything. I say, we need to get out of here. We need to go on an adventure. And I said to my wife, like, I don't care what it costs us. I don't care how much it sets us back on our business goals. If we don't, we're going to pick up and we're going to go on a family adventure and we're going to have fun together. Otherwise, we are just going to like tear ourselves apart as a family unit by the time we get out of this next lockdown we're heading into. So we picked South Africa where, you know, it was, they were heading into summers. We were heading into winter. I had a lot of contacts down there and it was a beautiful place. And at the time they had like zero COVID. Things were really mellow. And as soon as we got there, the South African variety came out. They went from being, you know, the, the hottest COVID place in the world and things got nuts all of a sudden there. But when we booked the tickets, it was very mellow there. <laughs> and it was just, it was great, but it was very much a, we need to look after ourselves and our own emotional health right now because otherwise we are crashing as a family. You know, individually and as a family, we're crashing and we need to get ourselves out of this so we don't sink into an even lower place. That was the motivation for that trip. 
I mean, on that last tip about being on a motivational journey, right? An experience motivation firsthand, like you did with that particular trip. What words of insight do you have for the, the listener, someone that's an entrepreneur and they're listening to your journey and they're seeing your ups and downs and seeing your successes and seeing and understanding what it took you to get there? What words of insight would you give to them? Have fun. You know, this is, don't, don't take this whole journey too incredibly seriously. I think sometimes entrepreneurs, they'll work so incredibly hard and they'll, they'll, forget, they'll forget things. You know, I see people trying to build businesses and their family life is falling apart or their, their health is falling apart. It's like, it's really okay to be building a, building a holistic journey for yourself. You know, one of the big mistakes I made in business was not really studying all of the things that have been done before me. And it's like so many of the things you need to know in order to build a business, they've already been done. It's not really that complicated. Study what works and do it. And don't feel like you need to be working 80 hours a week and killing yourself and never seeing your wife and kids or your husband and kids or whatever it is, because it's so important that you build this thing. Really, you're able to build it in part of a fun, overall, holistic way. I will tell you the times I was doing best in business were the times I was taking it least seriously and having the most fun. Were the times I was looking at it as a game, it's like, okay, wow, let me try this new thing out and see how that goes. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, let me try this other thing. The times I took things seriously, the times I was like desperate for money and like I was so tight, I was so afraid of anything not working, working well that I worked so hard and did a lot of stuff that was just stupid. It was when I was having fun and enjoying it and taking things lightly and willing to experiment and not being too attached to what the outcomes were going to be. That's when my business was really growing fast, when I was looking after myself in a, in a healthy, holistic way. Very nice. I mean, so on that, on that note, right, how does someone get in contact with you? Are you on social media? What website? How do you communicate with the outside world? So first of all, I'm really happy to give people copies of, of some of my books so they can go, go to thesizeofyourdreams.com and you can download a free copy of The Size of Your Dreams. Go to buildmycashmachine.com and you can download a free copy of The Cash Machine. And that's really the, the place number one. I don't do a ton of social media stuff, um, but check me out through my books. And I love hearing from people who've, who've read the books and in terms of other offerings, like we have a whole money mindset challenge. If we realize that a lot of the money stuff people go through is because they've got, a, they've got mental blocks around money, just like I felt guilty making more than I needed to get, to get by, and I didn't know what to do with money, and I thought investment was really hard, and I didn't want to be looking into it. Once I dealt with those issues, suddenly I was able to bring a lot more, um, a lot more success. So you can check out moneymindsetmadness.com. It's a really fun 21-day challenge that we offer. And through any of those channels, you can, you can get in touch with us and, uh, and we're always happy to hear from people. Nice. So I got a couple bonus questions for you. So we're going into the bonus round, right? Awesome. And I've been thinking about this the entire time. And like, I'm listening to you and I'm like, I'm, I'm inspired by you and I'm motivated by you. And my question is, is like, how the hell does someone go from being raised in Connecticut, become a rabbi? Like, how, how did that happen? You know, it's interesting. A big part of it came from the fact that I didn't have a very kind of evolved understanding of my own Jewish background when I was growing up. And even though I was made to go to Hebrew school multiple times per week, 
it didn't really excite me. I didn't, I didn't connect to it. And when I first got to Israel in college, I had my first exposure to the Orthodox world. I heard people talking about things being among the most basic concepts in Judaism. And I'd never heard of them. And my first indication was like, my first feeling was, wow, like I spent so many years going to Hebrew school. Why have I never heard of things that are absolutely basic? Why have I, you know, I've heard people talk about the Torah, but I'd never read the Torah. Why didn't I have a stronger education in these areas? And really it was, like you said, he's called me the curiosity boss. It was a curiosity to know more about my background, more about my, my heritage, and more about all this wisdom. Like the, Judaism is very much about, it's very academic. It's very much in, in the books and in studying and trying to learn to unlock passages and unlock understandings. And I was fascinated by it and felt like, why didn't I ever get exposure to this? And that's what really good, drove me to, to say, okay, I want to take some time and dig in and really throw myself into learning about Judaism and kind of trying to unlock all this wisdom that is embedded in, in the tradition. And that's ultimately what led me to go down the path of becoming a rabbi. The rabbi thing is pretty insignificant, truthfully. Um, you know, the, it's almost like being, you know, I went to law school and I became, became an attorney. Because I was studying about Judaism, at a certain point, people I was studying with took the exam to become become rabbis. They were, we were learning all these laws that they tested that a rabbi has to know about. And so I was studying that. So I went along and be, became a rabbi with everyone else. But it's not really like, you know, I don't have a pulpit. I don't, it's not actually how I live my life. Um, it was more just on the process of wanting to dig in and gain greater understanding of my tradition and really finding a tremendous world of wisdom in that tradition. And that's also what led me to write the Age of Prophecy series, where I felt like, okay, I need to get this out again, through a novel, I want to expose people to all this wisdom in a way that people probably wouldn't go and access on their own because it's, it's hard to kind of open up a book and just dive right in. But if you get into a novel, ah, okay, that can really expose you to, you know, to all the greatness that is in the tradition. Very true. Very true. Got another bonus question, like thinking about what you just said, right? Like if you could spend 24 hours with anyone, dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Wow. Dead or alive. Um, you know, I guess for as long as we're in, this, in tradition, let's go into, uh, let's go into Abraham. You know, he was a, and at first I was thinking about, okay, who are the people in my tradition I'd really want to want to go with versus thinking about Moses. But I, I think I'm more curious to, to look at, at Abraham, who was such an innovator, who had such a, almost a, a personal connection with God and was, you know, dedicated himself so much to, to reaching out to people. And, um, you know, a lot of his connection was just giving people food, giving people giving people water, providing for people and trying to trying to connect and trying to build all these human connections. I think he's the person I'd probably want to want to speak to. Very nice. So going into the closing of the podcast, and I think giving you the microphone and making you the host of Boston Cage podcast is going to be very interesting. So I like to close out every episode with an opportunity for my guest to become the interviewer. So do you have any questions that you would like to ask me? Yeah, what's your number one goal 
in creating Boston Caves. I could finish that with one word, legacy. I mean, the goal of the entire Boston Cage is essentially not to only inspire my kids and my grandkids, but to inspire the legacy of entrepreneurs that are up and coming. Entrepreneurs that may not know that this platform is out there, that know that entrepreneurism is not just something that you do. It's a way of life. And in, through the stories that we're telling on this episode and, and other episodes, then it becomes something that's tangible, something that they could obtain and comprehend because they're seeing people doing it every single day but hearing your story hearing about you becoming a lawyer and realizing that that was not the the thing that you wanted to do and then you went into selling furniture and then from furniture you sell beds you sell cabinets and then you ended up with knobs and you end up with this this multi you know successful industry that you didn't start out with before so it kind of gives them the opportunity to understand that it can be done but you're going to have to take the actions to achieve the goals that you're trying to get to Okay, fantastic. Yep, yep. Well, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, what time is it in Israel right now? 4 p.m. 4 p.m. So it's 9 a.m. stateside, East Coast. So <laughs> I definitely appreciate you reaching out and, and, you know, obviously filling out the form as quickly as you did. And I think this podcast was definitely a fruitful podcast. And I just want to commend you on your journey and, and inspiring entrepreneurs and, and keep doing what you're doing. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss in Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.